This is Susan B. Brock, Telluride, Inside and Out. Today we're talking with Dr. Alan Softy, a world-renowned internist and gastroenterologist with encyclopedic knowledge of mind-body wellness and preventative medicine. This summer, Dr. Allen once again leads week-long wellness retreats using an evidence-based scientific approach to health and longevity. The program features an experienced staff of medical professionals, personal trainers, Pilates and yoga instructors, dietitians, and chefs, all focused on your unique wellness profile. Each Live Longer retreat is one of a kind in the United States. Those intensives, limited to only 10 to 15 participants, include personal consultations, hiking, spinning, yoga, Pilates, and so on. But today the subject is cardiovascular disease. Nearly half of all adults in the U.S. have some type of cardiovascular disease, according to the American Heart Association's Heart and Stroke Statistics, published in 2019. Um, the data was published in the association's journal, Circulation. Dr. Safdie picked it up, and today we're asking him why this dark trend and how to avoid becoming a statistic ourselves. Thanks for taking the time out of your schedule, Dr. Allen. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you again. So, as stated, recent reports uh, indicate that cardiovascular disease is on the rise in the United States. What is the single biggest contributing factor to the news? Um, let's define cardiovascular disease initially, just for the few people that are not sure what we're exactly talking about. So we're not talking just about coronary arterial disease or coronary heart disease or myocardial infarction. We're also talking about cerebrovascular disease manifests by strokes and transient ischemic attacks. The arteries in your leg is getting narrowed or peripheral artery disease or pain in your legs with exercising or inflammation and plaque formation in the aorta, uh, whether it be in the chest part of the aorta, the thoracic aorta, or the abdominal aorta. So, you know, what's causing this increase in lifetime risk of all these cardiovascular diseases, which, as you mentioned, approaches 50%. And that 50% is for people aged 30 years without known cardiovascular disease. If we look at 60-year-olds, the vast majority of them have some form of coronary or cardiovascular disease. So if we look at 30-year-olds who don't have any disease right now, their lifetime risk approaches 50% of them will have some form of cardiovascular disease. So what we have is a population that's increasing in obesity or obesity levels are going up. Um, luckily, our smoking is not. Our type 2 diabetes is going up. Um, our weights are going up. Our, you know, circumference of our waist is going up. And we'll talk about all those specific numbers as we go through this. But we're not doing a good job of modifying the risk factors. So if we look at the typical risk factors, don't smoke, become physically active, have a normal blood pressure, have normal blood glucose levels that's monitored in more specific ways than just the blood glucose, having normal lipid profiles and normal weight and a very healthy diet. And unfortunately, some of us fall down on several of those fronts. Okay. Thank you very, very much. Um, cholesterol is in the common parlance. Most people understand what cholesterol is, but how does it fit 
into the picture of cardiovascular disease? Um, you know, all of us think of, you know, one or two numbers with cholesterol. Uh, the body produces two main types of cholesterol, LDL, uh, low-density lipoproteins, are the bad cholesterol. And then HDL being the good type of cholesterol. And then we have triglycerides. Um, about 20% of your triglyceride score add up to be your total cholesterol score. So we need to look at the fraction of good to bad. And there's much more specific and good tests that one could do other than the typical LDL, HDL, and triglyceride levels. But if we just look at these relatively simplistic scores, an ideal cholesterol score for total is 200 or less, with 200 to 239 being borderline and over 240 uh, being high. But we also want to focus on having better good cholesterol and lower bad cholesterol. And it's very difficult um, for some people to change these with diet alone, but it can be done. But be specific and define a little bit about the function of cholesterol in the body and how bad cholesterol correlates with heart disease. Well, cholesterol is, most people aren't aware, but cholesterol is needed in every single cell in your body. Um, we need cholesterol. Um, cholesterol is essential um, for us. It's not, the, it's not something that we want a cholesterol score of zero because our cells need cholesterol. Um, but the higher the LDL cholesterol, the higher um, that we have this bad cholesterol, the greater the risk um, that ones can have for cardiovascular disease, the greater the plaque formation. You need inflammation, you need high cholesterol. Um, so these lipids, which can be measured in a variety of ways, um, can lead to this plaque formation or these little things sticking or aggregating to the inside of the vessels. So the prevalence of people with hyperlipidemia or bad lipid profiles uh, with premature coronary heart disease can be up to 75 to 85% of patients. Um, so we need to look at family histories early on. We need to measure, um, there's something called apolipoprotein B to apolipoprotein A1 ratio, and I don't expect anybody to think about that, but that's something to talk to their doctors about. Is should I be looking to see if I have this abnormal lipid profile by looking at apolipoprotein B compared to apolipoprotein A1 ratio? Um, and a lot of patients that have the first MI have these abnormal ratios of those types of lipids or metabolism of lipids. So it's something we need to pay strong attention to. And we don't want to just think of statins to lower this. Um, you know, all of you know the drill. You know, limit the red meat, especially the four-legged animal type. Um, you know, eat more whole grains, eat a lot more fruits and vegetables, eat foods that bind cholesterol in the GI tract, such as oatmeal and lots of fibers do that. So, you know, if you can't limit red meat, have meatless days a week, uh, may even be helpful, and get more exercise. Um, so, you know, there's a variety of ways of modifying risk factors in patients, and uh, this is one that can be and we're going to be thinking beyond LDL and HDL and triglycerides in the future. 
Okay, uh, now factor in blood pressure. What does that have to do with the story? Um, people should be looking at blood pressure and resting heart rate together. Um, you know, your resting heart rate is simply how many times your heart beats per minute while you're in an absolute state of rest. And a good time to check that is in the morning before you even get out of bed. Uh, and if you see that number going up over time, and that can tell you that your physical fitness isn't as good as what it used to be. Uh, resting heart rate typically is between 60 or 100. Elite athletes, it may be 40, 45, 50. Um, stress can increase your resting heart rate as well as your blood pressure. So we need to look at both of those together. Um, you know, your blood pressure, your resting heart rate, as your blood pressure goes up, you're putting more stress on these small blood vessels that you have. So it's something that we need to pay very close attention to. That you know, hypertension is a well-established risk factor, meaning somebody that has a blood pressure over 130, over 80, those numbers have come down. We used to look at 140 over 90. But the lifetime risk of developing cardiovascular is significantly higher among patients that have high blood pressure. Um, so if we look at large cohorts done over the years, there was 1.25 million patients aged 30 years or older without baseline cardiovascular disease, and those that ended up with baseline treated hypertension had significantly higher risk of cardiovascular disease than the ones that didn't have high blood pressure. So even without us, that just is an independent number. It's a risk factor for development of cardiovascular disease. So even though you don't have it, if you have high blood pressure, you want to make sure you do everything you can to lower your blood pressure. What does circumference of our waistlines have to do with the story? That's a great question. It's <laughs> um, so one of the numbers we should pay attention to. Um, so, And there's a variety of ways for people to check that, but it's called visceral fat. Um, Right now, we look at people and we look at body mass index, which is a screening tool that we use in medicine. It's a ratio of height to weight. Um, and when it's too high, um, over 24.9, uh, you know, you you're overweight. Right now, we have almost 40% of America that's not just overweight, they're obese. The number would be 30 or higher. And that's a huge risk factor for heart disease. But another risk factor is where you have fat maybe just in the abdominal area. And abdominal fat is a significant problem. Um, so we don't want to rely on BMI alone, which a lot of doctors do. We don't want people to carry fat around in their abdomen. I'd rather it be on their hips or elsewhere than their abdomen because we know people with abdominal fat are at greater risk for heart disease and also greater risk for type 2 diabetes. So you want to measure your waist circumference. Um, one of the older general goals for men should be waist circumference is less than 40 inches and women 35 inches. I really don't like that alone. I think a good rough gauge would be take your height. So, you know, if you take your height in inches, so you're 70 inches tall and then divide that by two, I'd like to see a waist circumference personally around 35 or less, not 40 inches. Um, so I'd be a little bit more strict than these old goals of 40 inches for men and 35 inches for women. But we know when people put on abdominal fat that they are at greater risk, not just for heart disease, but all forms of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. 
as well as fatty okay. liver, which can be pretty destructive to the liver itself. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, you alluded to the virtues of exercise with regard to cardiovascular disease. It's kind of a, a big duh. Of course we know that. But how much exercise if you're trying to uh, mitigate heart disease? Um, that's a great question. And do we have great answers? No, we have to look at the data that we have so far. Um, you know, exercise, if we look at Copenhagen studies, it averaged out at 150 minutes per week or 22 minutes per day, say, which is not that much. If I tell you to exercise an hour per day, you may not do it. Um, but at 22 minutes per day, you had a 31% decrease in all-cause mortality, I mean, heart disease, strokes, cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease. So it doesn't take a lot of exercise. It just takes persistence exercise. Um, I usually tell people to start at 22 minutes a day because at that point they can be relatively, have almost no excuses. I can't believe that they can't find 22 minutes a day. We used mm -hmm. to say 30 minutes a day. Um, based upon those studies, I would take 22 minutes. I would prefer 30. Uh, and then there's benefits to resistance training too. So exercise doesn't only and shouldn't be only aerobic in nature. Um, resistance training has modifies a lot of risk factors for cardiovascular disease. It lowers your blood pressure. So if you're lifting weights, that may lower your blood pressure. It reduces your fasting serum glucose concentration. It improves your insulin sensitivity, so insulin works better. It helps with the lipids, and it decreases your waist circumference and improves your overall body composition. So we want to look at aerobic exercise. We also want resistance training, too. Thank you. And what about sleep? How much do I need if I want to avoid a cardiovascular incident of any kind? Um, tough question for me because I often don't get enough sleep. Um, but really you want to take a look at between seven and nine hours. Uh, too much sleep may be detrimental uh, for people. Uh, and too little sleep may also be detrimental. So if we look at most studies... It falls in the range of seven to nine hours. Somebody gets 10 hours, does that mean it's bad? No, not necessarily. So, you know, everybody may be one or two standard deviations away from the mean. Um, so we don't want uh, people to think, oh, I need nine and a half hours sleep. I'm going to be doing myself significant harm. Those, if we look at people that had the most harm, those who slept five hours or less, um, that may be the worst. Um, but... You know, try to get an adequate amount of sleep. Make sure that you feel rested when you get up. Um, and those that slept seven hours a night had less calcium in their arteries or early signs of heart disease than those who slept five. So that's the best data I have is, you know, if we look at seven compared to five, those that slept five had more calcium precipitation in the arteries, and uh, which is an early sign of their heart disease, than those that got seven hours or more. So. Great. Okay. Um, VO2 max is another term that gets bandied about in the context of cardiovascular disease. What should I know about this number? Um, it's an interesting number. Um, so what view, it's a measurement uh, gives you a unique perspective on your aerobic fitness. Uh, so the higher the number, the healthier your overall cardiovascular system is. 
it's very difficult for people to know what their VO2 max is. Actually, if anybody has an iPhone and they run, they can actually see it on their iPhone if they have it set up there, but it's a calculated VO2. Um, the best way to measure it is on a treadmill and you're actually running to the point of exhaustion. And then we plug in numbers such as your waist circumference, resting heart rate, and we can determine VO2 max. Um, you can calculate it by knowing those numbers also. So the higher the VO2 max, and what I like for is if somebody looks at it and sees where they are, and they can go online, a good place, a good online calculator, and people are going to have to write this down, is worldfitnesslevel.org. Um, and it gives you your VO2 max score, and it gives you your relative fitness age. So when I look at my current age, which is significant, I don't like to look at it, I much prefer my VO2 max score or my relative fitness age. Um, and that is much more important to me uh, than my chronologic age. So if you don't have the capability of measuring it, you can calculate it based upon some of these calculators. Your iPhone, worldfitnesslevel.org uh, will do this. But it's, it's looking at, you know, cardiovascular fitness. Um, and any kind of cardiovascular exercise, whether it's running, biking, or even weightlifting, done in high enough intensity will improve your VO2 max over time. So what I look is I don't want to see mine decreasing over time or decreasing dramatically. And I'm never going to be what a 30-year-old you know, athlete's going to be. But I want to see my VO2 max score staying relatively stable. Okay. Thank you. Um, and finally... Um, do all the factors we've d discussed, sleep, exercise, diet, VO2 max, blood pressure, etc., do all those factors also figure into brain health? Our recent Harvard study suggests that they do so that when you're taking care of your heart, you are at the same time taking care of your brain. So is that the case? Absolutely. Uh First of all, Alzheimer's or dementia is not the only type we have. We have cardio and dementia, meaning stroke, already to the brain. So anything we do to improve our heart will decrease other types of dementia. Um, our fruit and vegetable intake, as we increase fruits and vegetables, the risk of cardiovascular heart disease is inversely proportional to fruit and vegetable content. Meaning, more fruits and vegetables you take in, the lower the risk of cardiovascular disease, including strokes, which can which we need to avoid if we want adequate brain health. So we want to avoid vascular dementia. We want to be fit. We are. We want our diet to be pristine. We don't want to be smokers. Uh, we want to be physically active. We want to monitor our blood glucose, including our hemoglobin A1C, because diabetics have greater risk to brain health also. So there's lots of things and lots of reasons that these are intermeshed and interchangeable. So brain health and cardiovascular disease health uh, should be thought of in one basket of preventative medicine. Okay. Thank you very much. This has been Susan B. Brock Telluride, Inside and Out having an in-depth conversation with Dr. Alan Softy on the subject of how to mitigate your risks for cardiovascular disease and brain diseases as well.
thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with me. Thank you, Susan. This has been fantastic. You're welcome.